Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it. 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? And multiple projects together. I, For some reason, it just never hit me that we also had that same... Uh, connections. I feel like it's because we never felt like, well, I'll speak for myself. I never felt like I fit in there. So, so if you, if I don't feel like I fit in somewhere, I'm not going to be like, Hey, so-and-so let's, but, but you're right. I mean, I think the, the resources and the um, people available to us are the same people that were available to them. You're so right. I think it just, for me, it's psychology. It just comes down to not feeling worthy or, um, interesting or whatever enough to say to someone, Hey, let's do a project together or let's, you know, absolutely. And and it is sad. And, and I think I always, through graduation, after graduate, I always had the feeling like I, it was a mistake that they let me stay there. It was a mistake that I was ever let in in the first place. I didn't really belong to, you know, so then you'd think, well, but everybody else did everybody but me deserved to be there and so they all get to reuse their connections right right of a of the school i mean i use their connections reap the rewards i definitely feel the same way and i also i also felt like and i felt like this at grad school too that i didn't fit in and so i didn't use use my grad school connections when I was starting out as a therapist. Like it's just, Mm -hmm. I didn't use any of my connections anywhere ever. I have never, I have never even, yeah. Even when I was a therapist too, Aaron would always be saying to me, like, like an example was, this is a very, this is not related, but it's related. Uh, I remember when we were living in New York and he was, in his residency and I needed a doctor's appointment or something like that. And I called and it, and I kind of needed to be seen urgently, but um, they didn't have any appointments. And so I had to take one that was whatever in two weeks. And I told him about it. And he was like, did you say that you were married to me? And I said, no, (laughs) why, why would I do that? He's like, Gina, you, you have to say, you have to call back and say, I'm Dr. Krasner's wife. And it made me feel icky, but whatever, it is just the way it works. Because sure enough, when I called back, they're like, oh, why didn't you say something? Of course you can come in today. Oh I guess my it God. just, I guess it just really bothers me that that is the way that the world works. And, and I, and I have never been one to want to I've never I've really eschewed like the whole schmoozy nature of this business which is another one of my failings like in terms of getting getting what I wanted out of my career oh I mean I think I totally can relate to that and I all I can say is like I totally relate and also we're given a chance thank gosh now to start over and to do it in a way that isn't smarmy, but is also, it it comes back to confidence, right? It's a confidence Mm -hmm. game of like, get in there and swing your dick and and own your shit. And so now I I did something um, like 
two, two weeks ago when I talked to somebody and I told you, you know, it was through a friend and, but I did say my ask is that you would, I just, to the person, Good. I just said, my ask is that you'd read my spec. And then if you, and, and then, and, and, and if you have any feedback on it, I would ask that you give it to me. And I would also ask that you read our original pilot. And if you have agents and managers in your world that might like our, our work, please, if you would pass it along. And no one was like, Oh my God. You know, she wasn't like, Oh, that's crazy. She was like, okay. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. Because everybody also knows before the conversation ever happens, if somebody's asking to chat with you everybody already knows that there's going to be an ask in there that that's how it works and the other thing I was going to say is even when so I was thinking about like well is it me is it so the common denominator so I remember when um I had just moved to LA and actually someone in said oh I told my agent that there was a hot new Latina in town immediately I felt terrible like I didn't feel like I deserved Mm -hmm. that label right whatever the point is she was trying to be super helpful and she made an appointment with me with her agent and I went in beans and I bombed the meeting I sabotaged myself I sabotaged the meeting I, I downplayed all my, I had been on two TV shows at the time. I downplayed the TV show. I, I ruined it. I ruined the meeting hmm. and, and wow. I wasn't ready. I wasn't, I yeah. couldn't, I couldn't take it in. And now we're just starting to be able to be like, yeah, no, we want to do projects. We want to do this. We're worthy, but it took me to be 45. That's what it took. That's what it took. And it takes what it takes. I've been talking about this a lot on, in various rooms on clubhouse recently, I, you know, it's, it's so fascinating. It's 2021. People who are on Clubhouse for the most part are on the early adopter side of things. There are these innovators in tech and business and arts. And yet 97% of all rooms are moderated mostly by men, have mostly men on stage. Many of these stages have a token woman who only gets called upon like to fact check something or even in the town hall, you know, it's founded by these two guys and they have these town hall meetings and there's a woman on there, but her job is to run the meeting and ask the question, you know, she's like, has an admin function. I don't know what her job job is, but on this town hall thing, she has an admin type function. And so many people use that. And it's, and let me tell you a few things I've seen recently. I've seen a, room called let's talk about menstrual health run by two men oh my god i heard a woman tell me yesterday about a a group where well i don't know if this was in the title of the room but when she went in there she's a black woman and when she went in there it was two guys talking about what it's like to grow up black two white guys um, oh my God. I participated in a room called There Is No Such Thing as Patriarchy, Convince Me Otherwise, where I raised my hand and other women presumably raised their hand and were never called up on stage. And it was mostly just men on the stage. Yeah. So, like, no, even in this sphere, we are still still so woefully behind. And I think that they've the founders have gotten feedback about the inherent racism and misogyny that exists 
on this app because of course it would because it exists in the world and how could it how could this be any different and it was so created by two guys you know so yeah yeah exactly hopefully exactly. Our, we get uh, oh that leads me to to the story of um speaking of tech and innovators of elizabeth holmes the thanos mm. the yes I i'm love behind that story. so i'm behind on that story so um elizabeth okay. holmes is the is the the Stanford dropout, right? For people, everyone probably knows this, but me. But was, uh, last night I watched a whole special on her, um, who started uh, Theranos, right? Therapy and diagnosis mm-hmm. put together a blood testing machine and gonna gonna um, just revolutionize lab testing. Well, mm-hmm. she was a fraud, but but she was fascinating. I mean, she changed her voice. Mm-hmm. Do you know this? Mm-hmm. That she she just oh, yeah. she adapt I, a, a, a totally like this is how yeah, she sounds. Talk- she started yeah. talking. I mean, I'm fascinated by those things because of my therapist yes. and true crime background. I mean, I, I get the fraudness, and I it's a, again like Pablo Macaroni, whose name isn't Pablo Macaroni. We find out now. <laughs> forgive me, Pablo Macaroni, but like it, it, it's that mass delusion thing. But she was a woman who did it, and man, the black turtlenecks. The I'm fascinated by her fascinated i think that she's amazing <laughs> this did you watch the hbo documentary about her or you watched like a 2020 i just watched a 2020 because i don't have hbo but get but girl I will. what are you talking about you have a whole profile on my hbo max i've, oh, I've, give, I've made a profile right. for you i've given you my login information okay, okay i'm gonna watch i'm gonna watch i'm gonna watch yeah it's uh what is uh forget what that one is called but you'll see it okay i'll go under you know documentaries yeah it's so good it's so good and yeah she's crazy and whatever she deserves to be punished but at the same time it's like she's just doing what every other you know guy who needed to not i mean not not to say that every guy has like been a scammer but just to say like she she got over on the system in a way that so many men before her have done and 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 the journalism the telling of the story of course they you know it's so skewed they were like and she was able to wrap kissinger and she'll and all her board members around her little finger because with those sparkling penetrating blue eyes i'm like you got come on yeah yeah so gross oh she was smart conniving um mm-hmm. brilliant and um and had some serious uh personality problems going on and she was she used her she she got over on you stop it's just because she's smart yeah, it's yeah not because she exactly. has pretty blue eyes exactly yeah yeah that i forget i feel like that documentary might have like four or five parts to it so you'll you'll okay. enjoy it yeah um Wait, so what got us started talking about that? Well, oh, just that, confidence? Well, no, I was talking about tech, like how she was on the cutting edge of oh, tech yeah. and Clubhouse mm-hmm. and, it, and and just Silicon Valley in general and how gross and male dominated. And she just walked in and was like, no, I'm here to take over. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Even, even there was a room that I went into called um, men. It was something like <laughs> men need to <laughs> men need to it wasn't this but something on the order of like men need to be feminists too and when i went into the room it was all men on stage and i thought well that makes sense though because they're they're talking about the role that men need to play but there were so many women in the audience and 
they weren't talking. They simply weren't talking. So here's my idea for an experiment. I want to figure out a way that I could have a room. And I don't know if I would want to say it in the title of the room or not. Where the idea is men would be encouraged to come into the room and not speak. So part of why these things perpetuate is because it's just what everybody's used to. So everybody just keeps doing the same thing. So it takes like a radical paradigm shift in order for literally, literally ask every man, you know, how many times they've been in a situation where something important is being discussed, whether it's at school, in a professional setting, even in a social setting where it's um, where, where people are talking about something, you know, important. How many times have you been in that setting and it's only women talking and the men are listening? Yeah, zero times, zero times, zero times, zero point zero 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 times. Yeah. And so it makes sense that so many men have the experience of like they can't hear, like they don't hear women when they're talking. It just sounds like noise to them because they have no experience with it because every a uh, 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 system, every construct that exists is predicated on this thing. Like, don't worry, the men, the men will tell you what, you know, like even feminists, I'm sure, suffer with this thing of wanting, you know, always wanting a, a male voice to be in the mix. So this, so it would be, and I don't know how, if it said that in the title, I'm sure no men would come. If it didn't say that in the title, but then it was just every time a man raised his hand to get on stage, he didn't get on stage. And then so he left. I don't know how to word it in such a way that men would want to come into the room and and stay if they're not being called upon. That's so interesting. It's such a maybe some would maybe if you said like we need you to come and, and, and we need you to listen and, and just listen. And I don't know if anyone would come and you, and you might, but I think, I think that it, it, it's a good experiment to be explicit in the title and see what happens because, mm-hmm. and just be explicit, like men, a women, a group for men to listen to. <laughs> I don't know, but yeah, I, I think be explicit and see what happens. Maybe some would, but then my question is, would it be men who are already semi-conscious and enlightened that would come and listen and the men who really need to listen? I don't know. But honestly, Boz, it's all even, men. The, <laughs> even the conscious ones and the enlightened ones, I swear to God, men who I love, all the men who I love in my life, who I think inherently have good values. I mean, listen, I'm saying it's like, it's not even their fault. It's simply so foreign this the the whole concept behind it is just so foreign that all of the men that i know who are great men would probably be really frustrated in a situation where they weren't allowed to talk not only are they not allowed to talk because they're used to that they're used to a group of women talking and then they just don't get involved but they have zero experience with a group of women are talking and they're listening and they can't or don't feel comfortable you know, or maybe they have, if it's, 
you know, maybe if you grew up in a household of women and you were the only boy, yeah, you got used to that. So those are probably the exceptions to the rule. But um, for the most part, men have not had that experience. No. And I think that even if they, like you said, even if they do have the experience, they maybe check out on purpose. So they're not really listening. Right. So that's right. That's not the point, right? To check out and go think about mm-hmm. something else. Basically, mm-hmm. what you're saying is we need them to be in prison for a little bit to just <laughs> before be forced to listen like they do an impact victim impact um, statements like when they but th- th- it's sad, but it seems like the only way that, you know, sometimes it's like being forced it's like retraining, remind training, like cult, mm-hmm. decult, de deprogramming, deprogramming mm-hmm. is what it is. But I mean, I don't mm-hmm. know how to do that without breaking laws, really. But, but, uh, <laughs> and in those victim, by the way, in those victim impact things, nine times out of nine, the the guys like, please, I can't. This is I can't take it anymore. This is torture. Right. It's like. Oh yeah, it, yeah, torture. Yeah, that, that's exactly the point of it. Right. Hey, oh, let me run this by you. Okay. I would like. I would like to to try to eradicate or diminish uh, comparisons hmm. in my life. So whether that's I'm comparing myself to somebody else who has something that I want or who doesn't and I feel better than them or or worse than them. That is completely unhelpful, even though I know it's humans and we all compare ourselves to each other. But I'm also talking about the kind of comparisons that we all end up doing and it it may ultimately be for a good cause. So I don't, this is what I want to run by you. I'm not sure if we need to get rid of this type of comparison. But what I hear a lot of people say when they're speaking their mind about something is something akin to, I know I haven't suffered like you, but I know what I have to deal with is nothing compared to what you have to deal with. I know it's not not a great comparison because you had this and I have this. I think it's kind and it's nice to be deferential and respectful if you are talking about something that you feel like it's weird that you would be comparing these two things. But does it really serve? No. Anything? Well, no, because with 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 the uh, what it is is and it's very it's very meta. So what it is is even in the in the art of doing that, there is a subtle. Uh, comparison that's obviously less than a power play. So by saying, I know I haven't suffered like you, what you're really saying is actually I have suffered, but I'm pretending, this is how I see it, but I'm pretending I haven't suffered. So it can be really kind, but I think a lot of times it serves to actually comparison, do more of a comparison and separate Mm -hmm. people from each other and breaks a connection that otherwise might be there. If you just said, this is my experience and it's the truth for me without having to even bring the other person into it. But that's very challenging. It's a very challenging. Yes. Why, why isn't it just implicit that if I'm just telling you about an experience I have, it is unique to me 
because it can't be anything other just as your experience can only be unique to you and and if we're saying like how has this been coming up recently it's been coming up in terms of yeah um you know or or let's see here I want to tell you about about this like a particular topic I don't think I should talk about on the podcast. Um, it's it's our uh, well I can think about it in terms of when I used to do group therapy, um, mm-hmm. at, both as a facilitator and I've been in group therapy. You get it a lot. So whose trauma is more important, and whose the underlying thing is? This is what I noticed. The underlying thing is. People are basically saying, and I've done it too. And I, when I've done it, I've said, my trauma is not being paid attention to. It's very important to me. I feel, again, always comes down to, for me, I feel less than, I feel unheard, I feel disconnected, and I want to be special. And and that is the, the root of most of my problems. But mm-hmm. I think, and I think that if people say, Right. Because if someone says to me, I mean, I know that I've only lost one parent and I know they're trying, genuine people are trying to be nice. But if people are like, I've only lost one parent, you lost two. Actually, it makes me feel worse because I'm like, oh yeah, I've lost two. I must be yeah. really fucked yeah. up. <laughs> right. Like they're saying like, I know I'm not. I'm, you know, <laughs> fucked up I'm as not, you. I know I'm not as pitiful as you are. Yeah. And like also the, the, the circumstances under which people are usually having these conversations is as in, a, in an attempt to feel connected, right? Or to like to make some meaning out of their terrible experiences. So you telling me that you haven't had, yeah, it only serves to make me feel other, which is at cross purposes with feeling connected and, and healing. It really is at cross purposes with healing. If you're talking about something like people comparing each other's trauma, people, and, and it comes up um, for me when I'm talking about something related to feminism or misogyny, and then I think, well, but I don't have the experience of a person of color who's a woman. So oh. that's really the person who like, you know, it ends up being like, that's oh. the only person who can really speak to this. That is such a great point. So that leads me to the point that is so good. Cause that leads me to this reading that I was in that imploded and I can yes. speak about it because it was the truth. It's what happened, but I can speak from my point of view, which was I had to take a stand because I was sick of letting the person who I felt was being, um, unnecessarily targeted. I had to be an ally to that person because that's what I committed to do. And so I didn't want to leave it to her, the person, the, the black woman to have to speak up against something that, that she felt was going on in this reading that was really, really hurtful and, and, um, and not helpful and troubling. And, but I said, why am I leaving it to that person? So I think when we ha- when we're trying to leave it to someone, it's two different things. I do think it comes from a good place of saying uh, it can of like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna speak for this person. But then I think what true allyship is saying, well, I'm not gonna speak for this person, but I'm gonna speak for myself about watching what's mm-hmm. going on and not feeling that it's okay. So I wrote a letter to the head of the company and said, this isn't okay. I don't, you know, it's not. It doesn't matter that it's not happening to me. That's not an excuse. Right. But I'm witnessing something that is not okay. And I think that that serves to connect people rather than 
disconnect and say, well, I'm not going to speak for this person. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I wasn't speaking for her anyway, but I, what I was doing is was speaking for myself as a witness and an ally to what I was witnessing. And I was like, no, not on my watch. That's where it comes down to not on my watch. And I have to remember that because I think that, right, there's a fine line between speaking for someone and speaking on behalf of them, but for yourself. Mm-hmm. It's really tricky mm-hmm. in feminism or really any tricky. racism or any of the isms. Yeah. So what was the, so they just canceled it because, because it became totally it was, unsafe. It became, it yeah. became, it, and this is, a, this is, and it comes down to, and this is interesting because it's about theater and it, it can relate to the theater school and stuff like that, where when you take on a project, I feel like it's essential that if you are the, and someone brought this up, we had a debriefing and someone brought this up in the debriefing with the company minus the director, um, it's essential that you do the research on who is helming what project and why. So you can't just mm. direct something well, you can, but as a company, you might want to say like, who are we choosing to direct this piece of this piece of art that deals with racism, sexism, all, all the isms in the 1950s and the in 2015, that's when it took place in two different time eras. And are we choosing someone to to helm this that we really feel can do it in a way that is very safe and respectful? Not everybody is meant to direct everything and not every actor is meant to be in every show. And so it was a huge learning for me is that like in that, yeah, it's like, let's take care of who we're choosing to, to um, bestow power on because inherently Mm -hmm. the director has power Right. And mm-hmm. so it's like, is this person equipped internally um, to to use that power in a, in a way for, you know, for the good of the play? And it takes some digging and you can't just say, yeah, go ahead, do it. You know, if you're a company, it blew up, it blew up. And I think it was like people weren't equipped. And was this a mostly white theater company? I think so. I know the heads, I believe the heads are like the artistic director and the is, and then I think the, the other people are, I think they have a couple of people of color on the board maybe, but mostly it was, yes. And the, and the, and the director was, was a white, was a white woman. And there was one black, um, castmate and she, and that was, it was, it was a mess. It was a mess. It was, in the scope of the project got too big and it just became, it was like one of these things that blew up in a week. It was crazy. It was crazy. So that's an interesting thing about that. You had a debrief and the director wasn't there. And that, that sounds appropriate because it sounds like the director was the problem. And, but it was, do you know if there was a plan for the director to be debriefed about what they did wrong? Yeah. I think someone asked and they said, yes, that we're talking with her. We're, because I believe that she's also an artistic associate of the company. I don't mm. think she's a member, but I, I'm not sure. So I know that they said they were going to. Um, so hopefully that took place because if not, nobody knows what's going on and they just think, oh, what happened? And I guess on to the next, you know, you know, mm-hmm. if, if you don't debrief. Right, right, right. That's right. It just keeps preparing. If you don't debrief and in some ways, 
it's not really related to comparison, except for I feel like what needs to be done with comparison is more integration and less separation. But um, if you don't debrief, it just becomes everybody apologizing for a bad, uh, you know, thing, and then just brushing it under the rug and moving on. It's like the people whose approach to dealing with conflict in life is just to apologize and it, it, it ends there. And I feel like people really tell themselves that they did such a great job if they were just able to say, I'm sorry. And that is a part, but it's just step one. And then the next thing is like, let's unpack what happened here. Why did you have this urge? What, you know, because uh, these systems, like I'm describing the system of that, wherein most men have never had this experience of listening to women. They're, we have a tendency to talk about them in these very theoretical ways. And what we need a lot more of is just, this is how we have to do it now. Like, you know what I'm saying? It needs this. It's like why we need reparations because you're never going to get past all of this generational trauma unless you start by apologizing, which I think I think that's the only thing that's been done so far is apologizing for slavery. Then right. you work, then you talk about how you're going to repay for all of this lost labor, you know, income and, 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 and then setting up new systems whereby th- th- there's more equity anyway. So yeah, it, that sounds like it was a, the best that that thing got canceled. Yeah, some projects just, you know, and I said, and I need to be canceled. And I did say to the artistic director, I said, listen, part of um, uh, uh, the trusting and being inclusive and is also knowing when to say, no, this isn't working. Like mm-hmm. you, you call it at certain points, you mm-hmm. call the project and you debrief about the emotional trauma that happened because of the project, but you still call the project, you call it. You just say that's mm-hmm. it. So I, I said sometimes being the most loving, responsible thing to do is say no. We're not moving forward, yeah. and, right. and, yeah. and that's just how I feel with certain things because it's too it's too much. You've gone too far. There's too much trauma, and so that's what mm-hmm. happened. And you know it's too it's too bad, but it's also part of part of life. And we're mm-hmm. knowing when to call it. <laughs> That's right. And it and the experience is still totally valid because if somebody learns something in the experience, then in, in a way, that's the job of art anyway, is to help people see things in a new way. Today on the podcast, we have Erica Yancey, the lovely Erica Yancey, who is a documentary and independent film producer. Yeah, she's a producer. She was an actor. She still sometimes she says she sometimes still acts here and there, but she's primarily a documentary producer and she loves it. She loves telling stories that way. And it was interesting to hear about it. It was. And also she um, is an advocate for um, embra- uh, um, embracing outdoors and exercise for people who don't traditionally get associated with doing those behaviors like people of color and people with different body shapes. And so You'll have to check her out on her Instagram, which I think we say it at the end of the episode. Yeah. She's a, I just had to do a cheesy joke. She's a trailblazer in more ways than one. Oh yeah. But I'm bummed. Love it. I love it. Please enjoy our interview with Erica Yancey. So I get it. Congratulations. You survived theater school. I survived. 
<laughs> and for that, you deserve a medal, as yes. we all do. <laughs> we all do. I've been reflecting on my time at theater school. And it's interesting because I was listening to some of your past episodes. And I was like, I don't know that I had that hard of a time at theater school. But then I was like, oh, wait, but all the things I picked up at theater school that were like negative and bad that followed me out of theater school. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> well, does that mean that you, at the time that you were experiencing it, you didn't find it to be negative? And so that would just been kind of your story about it? Yeah. And- so, I mean, there's a couple of things when I think back about theater school that, yeah, I, first of all, I think I was, I don't think, I know I was like, oh, like not very nice. <laughs> like, um, I was doing well, like all the teachers liked me and I thought I was doing, I was such a hot shot. Like by third and fourth year, I was pretty like not, gosh, even in second year, cause I was doing well. I think that was part of the problem, like part of the competition and part of the, um, like we would like me and another person who I was friends with at the time would sit in class when cut system was still happening. And we would be like, this is great for your podcast viewers, but we would be like, she's doing, she's doing scissors with her fingers, scissor fingers showing like, Oh, this person's getting cut. And like, what a bitch. (laughs) Who am I? You know? And and like sort of that didn't, that started at theater school. That was not something that I, was like before then. And then the other thing that sort of came up for me was when it got time for exit year, for exit classes and, you know, everybody was printing out their resumes and putting their weights on their resumes. I became very fixated on um, my weight. And I lost a bunch of weight my senior year. And that was actually the beginning of my eating disorder, which I <laughs> had, because, um, you know, people would come up, I had teachers come up to me and be like, you look so great. Um, and I wasn't getting cast in good roles before I lost weight. And then I got cast in better roles after I lost weight. And I was like, well, this is, this just means, you know, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And they would be like, um, I had one teacher say, I'm so glad you lost weight because you were too heavy for your age. And I was like, who says that to a 19-year-old? <laughs> what is going on with you? That's horrible. So, yeah, it was awful. And so I was like, okay, this is a, this is a good sign. This is the thing I should be doing. And, it, and that, that kind of negative body image, and um, I didn't have a super negative body image until theater school and, so, and then shortly after. So, yeah. So how did you deal with that after you left um i mean you're you're calling it an eating disorder so i'm i'm guessing that means you're you've been in treatment for it at least at some point yes i've been in i was in therapy for a a long time because i didn't really realize what was happening until i moved to la and then somebody was like you have an eating disorder because i didn't i'm not and i'm i was a binge eater and a compulsive over exerciser Mm -hmm. um i used to exercise a lot uh fourth year of school and um and even when I moved out to LA and someone was like, you have an disorder. And I was like, no, I don't. And it probably took me a good five years to finally be like, oh, okay. So that's what this is. And um, really dismantling it is a years long. Like I'm still dismantling it. I'm 
how many years out of theater school and I'm still like okay this is not a real thing like I don't have to count calories every day I don't have to do this every day I'm not a bad person if I have a piece of cake but like that is the kind of thing that kind of ate away at me and I was getting positive reinforcement at school so it didn't seem like a bad thing at the time it seemed really positive by the way, so many eating disorders start with that, a person losing weight for whatever reason, and then everybody, I mean, like, just wrapping their arms around them practically and and just endless compliments. I It, it took me a long time before I realized that it's not good to ever comment on somebody's weight loss or weight, like, it's just, it's none of your business, and so shut the fuck up about it. Yeah. <laughs> Because you have no idea what's going on with that person. You know, um, I've gained weight recently, but it's recovery weight. You know, like if somebody were to say to me, oh, you've put on some pounds. <laughs> like, but I'm, I'm healthy now. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm recovering, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. So it's, that's a good point, Gina. Like it's, you just never know what someone's going through and you really can't ever comment. It's just, it's literally none of anyone else's business. Yeah. And also the idea of putting our weights on our resume. I remember I remember um leaving obviously leaving the acting world and getting back into it and a uh, casting director saying, "Don't put that on. That's nobody's stop. No one does that anymore. Stop. That's crazy." And I was like, "What? I just thought people did." And no, I, of course I never told the truth about it. It wasn't like I was putting the right That's one on it. anyway. <laughs> and like what are they going to do? They're going to weigh you when you come into the casting office? Uh-uh-uh. Well, Erica, have I don't know if you've ever heard about this, but one of the things that we've learned in doing this podcast is that um, at Carnegie Mellon and other conservatories, there was weigh-ins. There were weigh-ins, Are yeah. Are you kidding me? No. I wish. That's I wish heartbreaking. I That's heartbreaking. So I've been thinking a lot about, like, conservatory education in general. And part of the reason why I was, like, trying to think back about theater school and I was like, it wasn't that hard, but I think I was part of the problem. Um, but also I went to a, a film school for uh, grad school. That was a conservatory and that was insane. And I think the problem is conservatory. <laughs> like, right. They feel like they have this license to pretty much say whatever they want to you um, to try to get the best work out of you. Um, and, and like for some reason abusive and, be, and being able to withstand abuse is some like some badge of honor. And it's, it's completely unnecessary. You know, there are incredible actors and creators who weren't abused during their education. And, and um, I think it's probably part of the conservatory world. When you say like that happens at Carnegie Mellon and other schools, like I think that kind of cutthroat diehardness happens. That's a good everywhere. point. When, when anything is niche or, you know, small in some way, it, do, it does seem to engender some type of an environment that, leads to abuse it's like cults cults are the same way we talk (laughs) a lot about Mm -hmm. cults on this podcast but it's true it's like it's kind of like a cult a conservatory and and i i you know i just i feel so sad that we all that 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 existed when we were so young but clearly you survived and you're thriving so i'm i'm grateful for that but man that is (laughs) i i did you feel competition like a lot of competition in theater school were you really i did i remember second year i I don't know if somebody actually i think somebody actually said this to me and they were like well 
you're not going to get cut because, you know, my, my year, um, there were a hundred of us in first year, which is too many. And then they cut us in half, which is so awful. And then they cut us in half again after second year. And so, um, like, that's just horrible. But people will be like, well, you'll be around because the casting pool needs black people. Oh, my God. And I was like, okay. And so I remember having, like, a horrible, like, trying to really prove myself um, outside, being like, I'm, I'm a good actress. It's not just because I'm black that they're keeping me here. Um, that was, Yeah. So, I mean, that kind of competition, yes. I felt competition in, like, the casting, the casting, although I felt like by third year I wasn't getting what I really wanted anyway, and I was sort of being relegated to, like, roles. Um, I felt what I felt were poop roles. Um, but the, the competition was more along the lines of who could get the best comments from who got a good job in class that day, uh... who got a you you know you did you did this really well and i worked really hard to get those compliments and those pats on the back because i am a people pleaser <laughs> and mm -hmm. so i will do whatever you want me to do to make sure that i'm staying in your good graces yeah i'm i'm interested in this idea that you you're saying about you were part of the problem or you you were mean or i mean that that thing about talking about getting cutting people while you're in class does sound pretty mean but did it I, I was gonna ask if that came from this feeling of competition if it felt like you needed to kill or be killed absolutely 100 percent. that was about me first of all about my own insecurities but it was about me needing to stay on top and needing to have a gauge that I measured myself against. Like, oh, that person's doing is not better than me. I'm definitely the best person in this class. I'm definitely one of the two. Like, we are the we are the good we are the good class, or we are the good um, group of of people. And yeah, it was all about the competition. But I'm I'm a little bit competitive anyway. Not to the point where I start. I mean, definitely in theater school, I was like I said, like not kind. <laughs> Um, most of the time, well, you know, when it came to things like competing and, and, and being better than somebody, and I feel like I'm not articulating this very well. Um, no, you are, you really are. Yeah, no, I, I, I really feel like, um, yeah, like the, the environment sort of bred that sort of cutthroat attitude to, um, be the best and damn all others, mm -hmm. right? And to make mm -hmm. sure that other people knew where they stood in, mm -hmm. um, yeah, in their place, in, in the place in the class. But to be honest, you guys did have a really good class. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, I, I'm just sitting here thinking, okay, well, but, but, but um, Dave and John, and you, I mean, you, you had some like superstars. I, I, I guess, I must have felt competition. I, it's not possible to not, but I even yet don't really register it in that way. Um, it could be because I didn't possess certain attributes so I, that other people did. So I like, wasn't like, I wasn't even in the race for, for, for a certain type of role. Um, but 
I, I, it does seem like it's possible that the more talented your class is, the more, I mean, cause I, I we haven't talked talked to anybody yet about specifically competition among the men um, with Dave, because, you know, Dave, Dave got like really, really, really great roles. I, I imagine people felt a certain type of way about that. You know, Dave, Dave was actually in the class, behind, Dave and John were in the class behind me. Oh, okay. My class, I was in the class behind you, which right. Jen joined at some point. Right. And the only person from our class that's like really broken out got cut, and that was Joe Sakura. Um, oh, right. From Pi. Yes. Yeah. Oh, my God. We yeah. just signed a first look deal with AMC, <laughs> by the way, or something. Right. I didn't Something know like he that. got cut. I yeah. I, I thought he stayed. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's. But the other thing so, I want to say is, just... it's Go just ahead. that Erica, you are so freaking talented that the other thing is, I'm not sure what you were feeling was was not valid. Does that make sense? Like, I think people who are really good, like you, I remember seeing you in um, One Flea Spare, right? And you were you were you were the lead in One Flea Spare, and I was like, you you were so talented. So I think it's interesting because when we talk about this stuff, I think it's real that people who are talented, like and Beans brought this up a little bit, like it people are going to be jealous, and so I think it feeds itself, and then you have to kind of maintain this I'm the best kind of thing because someone wants to knock you off. Your it's just and like you said, Erica, it's the conservatory itself feeds on that. It's a small cult, right? So it that's exactly how cults operate. So I just want to point out that the that the two things that you were very, very, very talented and that the cult feeds on that of sort of who's the best now, who's the best now, who's the best now, you know? So, but I don't want to take away the fact that you could act your butt off. You know what I mean? Like, I just don't want to take away from that. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, and I think that there's some, there's validity to that, right? Like you, um, you also have to fight to stay at the top. Somebody can't do better than you in anything. Somebody can't get a better role than you. Getting once we spare, like I felt the energy from people after getting cast in that, um, which is so weird. You know, when you look back, you're like, this is a college play. <laughs> it's totally fine. Like everybody chill out. This is not going to be what makes or breaks anyone. But it's hard to recognize that. And it's hard to see that. And there's definitely a, a, an element of fighting to stay on top. Um, yeah. And then, you know, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, but I mean, actually you say what you were going to say first. I was going to switch direction 100%. So you should say what you were going to say. Well, I was, yeah, mine, mine is a little bit of that too, just to say that um, I, I didn't get to see you in that much stuff, but I do remember you as being talented. So, but you left theater school, you did acting and now you're a producer. So at some point you made an important career shift. And I was just wondering what, what was entailed in that? It was, you know, it was, I was um, acting here in Los Angeles. I, I had a manager. I was booking work. Not a lot, not as much as I did in Chicago, but I, I still didn't want to move back. And um, I started seeing a therapist for my eating disorder. 
And I've had, this is awful. This is not, thank God this never happened at theater school. I had been uh, called back three times for a commercial, for a national commercial. And they cast me. And I showed up for the um, fitting. And I, and I told them I was a size eight, but a curvy size eight. And the clothes they had were junior size eight or seven eight, and they didn't fit. And I lost the job. Oh, I got my. fired. They paid me because I had been to three callbacks and they cast me and I didn't fit the clothes or whatever. And I was like, oh my God, like, this is the first time it's ever happened to me. And then um, they, I went and talked to my manager and he was like, well, you know, you got to lose, you either have to lose. Um, you have to lose 20 or gain 50. And I was like, okay. And I saw my therapist shortly after that. And she's like, listen, you can be an actress or you can recover from your eating disorder. Oh, wow. And I was like, okay, well, I think I will recover. And I luckily was in an acting class out here at the time that was making us do our own short films. Um, and I really enjoyed it. And so I applied to go back to school, um, I went to a, a film conservatory here um, called AFI, American Film Institute, and um, studied producing there. And that's how that happened. Okay. That's, I mean, yeah, I, that, that really hit me in the middle of my soul. Solar <laughs> you can be an, you can be an actress or you can recover from your eating disorder. Just out of curiosity, I, I, when you said the thing about the clothes, the first thought that came to my mind was, and I bet this commercial wasn't, it didn't even matter, like whatever it was for. Right? No, I, I don't even remember what it was for. It was like direct TV or I'm not, yeah, maybe that's too right. early for, it was something like not where they could literally have just gotten me a size 10 pants. Yeah. And just go to Target, screen. just go to Target right. and get some different pants. Right. Oh, it makes me like, so mad. It, it was mortifying. It was humiliating. And then on top of that, it was just infuriating because I, I did study, you know, um, classical theater. Hey, sorry. Hey, I'm going to bark one more time. <laughs> That's enough. I did study classical theater. <laughs> sorry. That's okay. Um, and then I'm being told that I, I'm not worthy because I am not the right size. Oh, my and God. That was it's really so disgusting. Yeah. So I was like, peace out. I will make things for myself. I mean, I would be lying if, like, me deciding to become a producer, race wasn't also a large part of that. Like, I wanted to see more representation. And it's funny now because I'm not doing anything that would yield that. I produce documentaries. But, um, yeah, I, I just found a way to still be creative and still be involved in the entertainment industry, which I love, um, by creating content instead of sort of being the piece that mm -hmm. moves around. Yeah. But did you want to be an actress when you were a child? I can't remember a time when I wasn't performing and wasn't acting. I used to do um, Annie. My sister and I used to perform Annie for my grandparents and for my parents. We'd sing all the songs. We would do it all the time. Um, like I would always perform. I did um, before, I, before theater school, I would was in tons of community theater in Indiana. Um, and I knew that I wanted, I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to be an actress. And then the end, the business is just not as pure as my desire was. Um, and I, I 
still asked occasionally. Rick Murphy and Rob Adler have a class here in LA. I went, I did took that class for several weeks. It was a lot of fun. I only stopped because I got too busy um, and then COVID happened. Um, but I still love to perform. I still love acting. I love talking to you guys right now, <laughs> um, which is like kind of performing. But um, yeah. it was just something for my own personal um, health and my own mental health that I had to take a step back for. Definitely. By the way, I just wrote down that quote, the business wasn't as pure as my desire. Wow. That's, that's we're getting some that's good really quotes today from Erica. We're getting some yes. decent quotes. You could be <laughs> yes, an actress she's... or you can recover. And my <laughs> well, desire it, was... It, yeah. And that makes me think you're a writer too. I do write. I, I, I write. Uh, I haven't written in a long time, but I am a writer. And of course, writing is a large part of producing um, but, um, I used to, I used to write a lot about race and politics because I worked for a political, um, production company when I first got out of school, out of grad school. And, um, yeah, I write a little bit. I, I don't think I knew that writing was a big part of producing. How, how is that? Well, it sort of depends. Okay. So it depends on what you're talking about as a producer. So, so for me as a direct, a documentary producer, finding story, pulling story together, um, maybe um, even writing voiceover. You're, all, you're sort of composing the story. When you're producing like a, a feature, narr- like narrative film, it's different because you're just, producers do like so many different things that it really depends on what kind of producer you are. So I'm like, a st- I'm a story producer, I'm a creative producer, um, uh, more so than like a logistical producer, like figuring out where this goes and that goes. Although I do that too. Which it's one of those catch-all term. Producer is like, like sort of a catch-all term for a lot of things. Right. And how did you uh, get involved? I mean, it sounds like you exclusively do documentaries now. How did that happen? Yeah. So I was a, um, uh, after I got out of grad school, I was an assistant. I was a really bad assistant for a celebrity um, per, uh, guy who was an actor and turned director. It was, I was horrible, um, but he was also pretty horrible. And um, he, uh, we, we had all of these projects that were just like spring break or another cop procedural and just like so boring. And I was like, I want to do things that are like making a difference that matter that are changing minds about things. So I started working, I I interned as a paid intern at this company called Brave New Films, which did the Walmart movie and Outfox and Iraq for sale. And I worked, I was there for three years. And then I was just like, I love this. I don't ever want to do anything else. Documentaries where I want to be. I want to talk about real stories and real people and learn things as I work. So that's how I got there. It's not very interesting. <laughs> no, that yeah. is interesting. And I, I, I just, I, I think it's, again, we talk a lot about how at the theater school, what would have maybe been helpful is if someone said, now you were, you were appearing to thrive at the theater school. So this is, but we do talk about saying like to, to kids, Hey, have you ever thought about producing or writing or, or, or um, directing? I mean, like why, because you clearly had that in you too. And it's like, let's, let's foster that. So it just would have been amazing. Maybe if they had said, Oh my God, you have your, your shit together in terms of this and this and this Erica, let's also turn you on to a producing situation instead of like, you know, 
pitfalls of just being trying to be a, a, a skinny actor. You know, it's like, oi, oi. But I'm glad you found it. I'm glad you found it when you when you did. How did you end up at AFI? Like, how did you say, okay, I'm going back to school? I found, I ended up at, I ended up at AFI very similarly to how I ended up at DePaul. Um, I was like, what's the best school in my area for me to go to? Hmm. And then I just, I, on a whim, like I applied um, and got it. <laughs> got in um which is how I applied for DePaul I was like I want to go to an acting school and my parents were like you can only go three hours away from us and we live in Indianapolis um so I applied early decision to DePaul and um got in even though my guidance counselor told me I was not going to get in that it was too hard Oh, that's great. Um, that's great guy. And then I got in and was like, never talking to you again. Yes. Um, great. <laughs> yeah. And did you know, by the way, we had John Jenkins on. Um, I, I had never heard this before. He said that when he was there and a part of the um, audition to get in uh, side of things, that they would have like 900 applicants. Are you so, serious? I'm serious. So if, if your class was narrowed down to 100 and then to 50 and to 25, which, by the way, John Bridges told us that there was no number, there was no quota. It's just a big coincidence that <laughs> every single person says it went by half the first year and by half the second year. So that everybody's graduating class was one quarter of what they started with. <laughs> that is not a coincidence, Mr. Bridges. Um, but nice that you think it was. <laughs> do you remember your audition to get into the theater school, Erica? I do. I do. Okay. I remember. Um, oh my gosh! So David Abcali was one of the people. Remind me to come back to David. Was one of the people in um, the room. I don't remember who else was there. Maybe Melissa Meltzer. And then um, I did. I'm so embarrassed. I did a monologue from the Wool Gatherer, which oh, they no. must have seen a million times. <laughs> but the one where the birds are dying and there's blood, like the yes. super dramatic one. Um, and then there's we did like an improv game where we were like washing your face and like doing all that. And I ha- and I and they're like, when we get to you, sing a song. And I sang, "There are worse things I could do from Greece." <laughs> oh i love this i love this so much i love everything about that well, that's a hard song to sing yeah too. my god oh gosh it was really did you funny. really feel like a rizzo did you identify with the with the rizzo character i totally did i thought i was so cool this is in high school because in high school, I was the cream of the crop, right? So, like, I thought I was so cool and, like, such a bad girl and misunderstood. And, like, that has nothing to do with who I am. <laughs> but at the time, it did. And so that's what I sang. And somehow I got in. <laughs> so you said to remind you to go back to David. Yeah. So David was a really I know David is a divisive character. He was a really important part of my time at theater school. He was my first year teacher. He was, um, I found his outbursts uh, funny, <laughs> where other people found them very scary. There were some things that he did in class that I can't believe he did in class. Um, I don't know if you're talking to like Paul Holmquist or anybody, but. Um, Not yet, but we'd like to. Yeah, okay. 
So there's, he tells this story better than I do, but um, there's this guy in our class who was, David was trying to tell him who he was through some improv game and he wasn't picking it up. And he picks up an actual chair, I think. He's like, I got a chair and a fucking whip. Who are you, Oh, it was insane. Like it was, he was, and then he would walk around with a stick in his hand and like hit the wall. And I didn't find that. I just thought it was funny. Like, but of course that's terrifying. You can't do that to people. And I was thinking about him yesterday and I was like, at the time I was like, thinking that he must have been in his like 60s. But there's no, like, he was definitely like in his 40s or something, yeah. right? <laughs> so, yeah. so. Yeah. Um, I was just like, he's such a funny, but he was, you know, he was very supportive of me and he was very, uh, I used to work for him. I worked in his office. I took his, um, I took Zach Helm's job, actually. Zach Helm had that job before me and I took it and we were very, um, we were, you know, we got along really well, but I know that he was a big problem <laughs> for a lot of people at theater school. And I think I just smoothed my way into escaping that, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I did um, the same. And- I had the same same exact thing. Where like I know yeah. he was. I know he was. He did rotten things. But I was such for some reason. Like I feel the same. Like I'm a people pleaser, and I'm. I did whatever he said. You know, to get on his good side, and then he sort of fell in love with me, and then that was it. But like he, people did horrible things to students, and just because they were nice to me doesn't make it okay. Right. It's like, it's like, you know, so, so Erica, one of the, I've never, we've never asked this question of anybody before, but one of the things that Boz and I talk about all the time is how we just didn't know ourselves at all. And, and, And in fact, that pattern continued long after we graduated. Um, I think maybe dealing with something like an eating disorder does force a person to get to know themselves better because it's literally a matter of life and death. But did you feel, what was your experience of that while you were at the theater school? Did you feel you knew who you were? Not even a little bit. Not even a little bit. Um, I was very fixated on trying to be what other people wanted me to be Um, to a... I think the first time when I stood up for myself at theater school was, and can we use people's name? I'm going to use David Abcali's name. Was um, when casting came around fourth year, um, Susan Lee had decided that I was like her star and really wanted to cast me as Tiger Lily, the hip hop dancing Tiger Lily in, in Peter Pan. And I couldn't dance. Like I couldn't dance. And she was like, listen, I really want to cast you with Tiger Lily. I auditioned for Wendy and she wouldn't even consider Wendy. And she was like, listen, I really want to cast you with Tiger Lily, but um, you're going to have to take extra dance classes. Okay, but you could cast somebody who already can dance. Like, why are right. you making me do it? And we know why she wanted me to yeah, do it. The hip-hop but dance queen. I, to this day, still can't dance. And um, I remember just you know, they have that big meeting where they're like, decide who's going to be in what play yeah, or whatever. Casting meetings. Yeah. Yeah. Casting meeting. Yeah. And I remember I was like, this is not me. I can't do this. This is not a character I can even pretend to be. And I called David and I was like, Hey, Susan Lee wants to cast me as Tiger Lily. And I don't want to do it. I'm not, I can't do it. And it causes this whole kerfuffle of a casting <sighs> meeting where she then 
called me and was like, what's going on? David said, you don't want to be Tiger Lily. And I was like, I don't. And that was the first time I actually ever stood up for myself, probably as an adult. Um, so it was at theater school, but I, you know, just the fact that I got, I got bullied into it that far along was just like, just me not knowing who I was and me not having feet on the ground and um, me not sort of recognizing what was good for me. And her being, and and her, and and Susan Lee being a racist. I mean, that's that's (laughs) also, I I will say it out loud. I mean, right? That's part of this. Susan Lee being a racist, yes. (laughs) And I put my hand to my forehead, my forehead, (laughs) my forehead. (laughs) You know, I, I, I guess I I didn't have her as a teacher. It's only been in this podcast. I I, I feel like everybody's been making this person up. I can't picture who Susan Lee is. Really? She was married to Stephen Gray, the, the combat guy. Blonde, but Shakespearean. My, 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 no, my combat Patrice, guy. Patrice was married to Stephen Gray, right? No, no. Patrice is married to Nick. 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 Um, oh. Nick Sandis. Sandis. And, and and I had Nick as my teacher, so I think I didn't know either of those people in that couple. Okay. I, I mean, Susan I, was. Yeah, go ahead. She was a small redhead woman. I, I, you had to have her because she taught stage standard, right? You don't remember that? No, I. We our class. Um, for for whatever reason, we had a different teacher. We had Ruth Rootberg. Yeah, see, we didn't have. Oh, yeah. lucky you, because Susan was a treat. Now she is somebody who really hyped up like favorites and um, competition and made things really. If she didn't like you, you knew she didn't like you. Right, hmm. and I believe that she called. Stephanie White was in my class. So Gina, I want, it's interesting that you didn't have her. But anyway, she she wanted to say African-American once and she couldn't say it. She couldn't figure out. She got tripped up on her words. And I instead of African-American, then she went to Negro. And then she said Negro. Oh I swear she oh said Negroid. And I looked at her. We Stephanie oh White God. and I looked at her. Oh, my God. And said, what? And she said, I'm sorry. And she, look, I'm not saying, all I'm saying is that's what happened. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> oh, you can say it. <laughs> I mean, I think that's, that's what happened. And and that's what we're contending with. So when I, when I hear you say it was me, 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 I, I do think being bullied takes, there has to be a bully. Do you know what I mean? That's like true. for you to feel bullied. Yeah. So I'm just, yeah. I want to make it clear that you were a child, almost basically a child, right? Because you were what, 19? Okay. 19 so or you, 20. Yeah. So yeah. Anyway, I just, we got to, we yeah. got to make sure we're doing that. So this is making me think of something. Uh, um, Jen Kober told us that she was told that her year was the first year they let in fat girls. And that there was that Betsy had to basically ca- campaign for this. Um, that they had just—I mean, whether it was spoken or unspoken—they had never admitted uh, a woman who would be considered fat. And and now I'm thinking that in a f- I, were there any other women of color in your class, Erica? Yes, there was one. She got cut. Her name was Yvette Robinson. Um, 
I think she was the only other one. And I remember at theater school, everybody would always call me like the name of the black girl who was in the, like in classes ahead of me. And they would be like, Nambi. And I'm like, no, my name is Erica. Um, Things like that. Um, There were two of us and there were, there was two, there were men. I think I was the only one that didn't get cut after second year. Um, There was a man, I forgot his name. I forgot his name. Um, and then in the year behind me, there were, you know, Honey and Larry and Kevin. Yeah. And that I, might be it. Yeah. What I'm, what I was getting at is I feel like it, it became a thing like, well, we can only have one per, you know, per year or per, right? Because that's, that was my recollection. That that's how class- it ended up. I was only, yeah. I was the only, by the time we graduated, I was the only black woman um, in the casting. Well, no, uh, Honey came in after, but so, and I think Honey was the only black woman in her year. And, um, oh, remember Aisha, Larry's from, oh, she got Aisha, caught. She was in Honey's year, but she got cut. Oh God. It's just yeah. so gross. I just can't even, yeah. it's just so yeah. It, 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 yeah, I but I remember I want to bring up one thing because you were and I want to get your experience. So most people we've talked to about the showcase had a bummer of experience. Now, you, if I recall, were like a superstar going to every meeting with every this is what I made up. So I, I, I'm willing to be totally <laughs> wrong about this. But in my head, you like slayed it like you were going to Universal and Warner Brother. Is that did I make that up or is that accurate? Yeah, that's no, that's accurate. I had three meetings. I had an agency meeting and two studio meetings, which, you know, is great if I was going to move to LA like the next week, but I wasn't. And the thing that that brought up was that people, you know, I had a really good friend who we weren't so great friends after that um, because she didn't, she got like one meeting or didn't get any meetings. And she was very like the competition and the, our our competitiveness turned on each other. Or mine didn't. I felt really bad that she didn't get me. I remember my parents were really upset with me because they were like, you got all this great stuff in LA and you're sad because your friend didn't get anything. And I was like, I don't know. That's what theater school teaches us. um, So, but yeah, my showcase experience was really positive. Um, I didn't move to LA, so it was kind of for naught. Um, I wish that we had also, I know that they're now, they now go to New York also. I wish we had gone to New York because I feel like that would have actually been really beneficial for our class in general um, because we are at a theater school. <laughs> um, and, um, but yeah, it went well. And then I, and then I came back and uh, got in, I had a couple of agents and I know that there's been a lot of conversation about the audition teacher who, um, yes, I had, a, an, again, I had a great experience with, I was actually friends with her. She's since passed, so I won't say her name, but, um, I know that she was, I know that she also had favorites and would call people in based on whether or not she liked them to be cast. And I got cast in my first two things because of her. Um, but I know that there are people who she just didn't call in because, she wasn't friends with them. She didn't like them. And that is, that's not okay. So Erica, um, it's, uh, you just mentioned your parents and it sounds like they were supportive of you. Do you have any other artists in your family? Did you come from 
theater people? Um, not really. My dad is a, as a pediatrician. He's a doctor. My mom was a teacher. She, I guess, taught theater, but, you know, we would do church plays. Um, nobody else is, uh, my cousin is an opera singer in Germany. Um, but wow. it's not like an artsy family. Um, more science-based, although we are all in entertainment. My sister, or, or on, in the public eye, my sister is a a reporter for a network news station in DC and my brother until COVID was a DJ. Um, a really and, and well known now, DJ. Well, he, he, he was a DJ for like a, a, some pretty big places in New Orleans and, the, and in South Beach in Miami um, and, and DJed for some big like athletes and things like that, but doesn't want to do it. And he's getting older, doesn't want to do it anymore. And guess what he wants to do now? What? He wants to be an actor. Ah! <laughs> He calls me all the time asking me like, hey, do you know, what's, what is, do you know, have you heard of Meisner technique before? And I'm like, yes. Have you heard oh, of Bolin? So and I'm like, yes. <laughs> yes, I have. <laughs> so he'll be like, hey, how do you do this? How do you do this? It's very funny. And it's, it's funny because I'm like, I stopped asking because the industry is just not great. But like this, I do remember this period that he's in of being in theater school and learning all these new things and feeling really confident about it being really interested and then it changes how you watch television and changes how you watch movies and so I know where he is I know what place he's in but at the same time I want to be like don't do it yeah <laughs> turn around yeah. run away so, yeah it's yeah. tough it's a it's a tough yeah it's everybody always says like if you can do something else you know you 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 really should and so that's so great that the thing that you found to do is uh, fulfilling I, it sounds like it's not really much in the way of performing but that it's fulfilling in terms of storytelling to some degree it's totally fulfilling in terms of storytelling um i'm i love it i feel like i'm good at it um and i and i'm freelance so i get to work on three or four things every year, you know, and nothing is ever the same. So, or two or three things every year. So nothing's ever the same. And, and I enjoy it. And the people I've met have been really great. Um, and yeah, and I, honestly, I, I think that part of what makes me good at my job is learning how to work with other people, learning the, 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 um, the idea of ensemble and collaboration I find that people who in this industry who don't work well with others or who do work well with others have acting backgrounds because they're used to collaborating and building a whole lot of parts and, and things like that. Whereas other people sort of get sort of like tunnel vision and, and don't know how to collaborate and, and work with an ensemble. I have a question besides, um, obviously we talked a little bit about one flea spare. Um, mm -hmm. What were your other roles at the theater school that you, that you loved? Like what, what, brought you joy there my favorite so I did a so second year you have to do a scene right like a um my I did a scene from Born Yesterday with Tom Holmquist Paul Holmquist where I played the Judy um uh, Judy Davis but, yeah, you know, Judy he, Davis. Judy, yeah and, or Holiday something um, when she talks like this, and she says, you're going to take me anywhere. And it was so much fun. And I wore a slip, and Paul was like this big, gruff guy. And I was, and Don Elko directed it. Oh, I loved Don so much. And, um, um, yeah, it was really, that was a great, like a scene was great. The other really fun thing we did 
was this director, this guest director did a workshop fourth year, the role I ended up with when I backed out of Tiger Lily. Um, and I forget what the name of the play was, but it was Andrew Giard and me. And I forget who everybody else was, but it was just like an exercise in like all the things we did first year, right? So we're like face work on a, on a, on a subway and like, like little scenes that we were doing and making sounds. And it was just so much fun. Like I've, I haven't had that much fun performing to that point. It was a, it was like a game every night. Um, and then I think those were the most fun things. And then, you know, obviously one police fair was a lot of fun to do with small cast and really good people. But, um, yeah. Yeah. Those are those are my favorite. Those are my highlights. Yeah. In this time of COVID, are you able to work? Do does the documentary world go forward? It does. Um, I have. I didn't have a. I didn't have a job from April to June, which was kind of scary. But um, uh, we're. I'm working from home. Um, we do interviews. We can do them remotely. Or we do them in a, you know, we're set up in such a way where we have all these zones and people can be here and everybody has to get tested and you have masks and um, it's very secure and safe um, for documentary anyway. Larger productions have a whole other behemoth to work with, but um, documentary production is is pretty easy because once you shoot, you're just in post and you're just, you know, working from home the whole time. So it's, it's a lot it's, it's, it's easy to do as long as there are projects being made, which there are. So do you have like a, a, right now, a passion project that you want to get made that you haven't made? Do you have a dream of a documentary that you're doing? I listened to this podcast called criminal and I shouldn't be telling this because maybe somebody else will want to um, go oh. out and steal my idea, but they did a story on this woman called Fanny Davis who used to run numbers back yes. in the, um, yeah. So she was the first, like, she was like the first black woman to have her own bank and like be their number running. And like, I want to do a documentary about her. I think she sounds incredible. This is her book. Yes. Uh, it's not her book, but her daughter wrote it. But I want to start pitching this um, at places to try to get it done. I think that would be really cool. Um, so Erica, we have a character based on her in our pilot. <laughs> we'll send it to you. Oh, no, we'll send you it to you. Like, yeah, yeah. She, that she is yes. so cool. She's a main character in our pilot, which is which people are reading. So it's yeah, yeah. She's I will send it to you. You gotta yeah, read it. A, that's she's so awesome. amazing. She's this uh, she's a grandmother age. But and she was running an, her numbers business in New Orleans. Yeah, and some terrible things happened, and she had to leave town. and And she's t- uh, re- she's responsible for her grandson. Who's the and so they moved to Sacramento, and she is re upping her business there and having to figure out like how it works differently there than what she's used to. Anyway, it's yeah, that's so that funny that you so would bring cool. that up. <laughs> I love it. I was I like, she's going to say, it. she's going to say Fanny. I know she's going to say Fanny. It's amazing. <laughs> That's so cool. So you're going to, okay, so you're going to get that made. That's amazing. I know you will. I'm working <laughs> on it. Um, That's really the only thing I, I like to do things that are like fun, not fun, but like docutainment. Um, like, um, the, you know, teach an important lesson, but are also not just like eating spinach all day. Right. right? Like, or, right. Um, it's just like, well, the spinach is good, but you know, 
it's fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I was just going to ask you, I, I love your Instagram and uh, you use these great hashtags. And I was just hoping if you could tell us a little bit about it. Sure. So I am a big, um, probably two and a half to three years ago, I started hiking seriously. Um, so I do, and there's no better place to hike than Southern California. Uh, or, or I mean, Colorado's probably better, but <laughs> um, I love hiking here. Um, so I do like longer hikes anywhere from probably not less than five and haven't done more than 15. Whoa, um, miles, miles you're talking. Miles, yeah. Holy <laughs> And there's not a lot of representation of larger bodies or um, black people on the trail. So the hashtags I use are Black Girls Trekking, which is a group that I used to um, hike with. It hasn't been hiking recently because of COVID. Um, Black Girls Hike, Fat Girls Hiking, Unlikely Hikers, just things that really promote um, diversity in, you know, race and body and just all the other things outdoors. Um, you don't see a lot of size 14 black women hiking on the trail. You know, you just don't see that very often. And um, I, I think it's important that we do see that and larger bodies and, and other, and, and other ethnicities. I, I'm off, I, um, Latino outdoors is a big deal. And, and um, unlikely hikers is for, is um, inclusive of queer communities. So it's just important to me that part of the reason why I started wanted to produce also is that I wanted to see more of myself and more diversity and more of other types of people. Um, and so I want to see those things outdoors as well. Uh, and yeah. I love that. And, 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 and it's a great testament to the fact that when we talk about how representation matters, we're not just saying in film and TV, we're saying in all aspects of enjoying one's life. And it's it never ceases to amaze me how you could, completely out of your own awareness, be influenced and think, well, I might like to hike, but that's not for me, only because right. you would never see that you know, on somebody's Instagram or just in life. And that, right. that all it takes is somebody, like I was just having this conversation with my husband the other day, because when I watched the inauguration, I literally cried my eyes out for like seven hours. It was so intense. And when my husband got home, he's like, whoa, what's going on? And I said, I did not plan to watch this. I sat, it's making me emotional just thinking about it. Because if you're, uh, you take, he, he as a white man takes it for granted that he just sees versions of himself mm -hmm. in all aspects of life. And I said, you know, it's not that there's no women in government in high positions of government, but the fact that it took us this long mm. to get a woman in the second highest position in the land is sad, but I'm, 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 I'm happy we're finally getting there. And the moment when, um, was it Sonia Sotomayor or Elena Kagan? It was Elena Kagan. Was it? No, Sotomayor. Sotomayor. It was her. Okay. So she's holding the Bible. And Kamala's, I mean, just, <laughs> it was so intense. And I thought, yeah, because growing up, you know, you, you hear about things that are happening in Congress and the Senate. And it's like, yeah, it's just a bunch of white guys. 
Right. And, you know, you know, not that I ever wanted to be in politics, but just right. Right. the idea that it w- I wouldn't have ever asked myself if I wanted to be in politics, which I would have never seen. Which really brings it also back to the theater school of like, look, we needed to say to, to it could have been, it just could have been so great to say, hey, Erica, you're a badass actor, but also, you know, please consider directing because you have an eye for X, Y, Z. It just brings it back to like representation in conservatories as well, like representation. Absolutely in general right it's like Jen you could write you could teach you could and I'm like what yeah (laughs) how many directors of color did we have at theater school how many outside like somebody asked me like when was the first time you had a black teacher and it was college and it was Phyllis Phyllis, right and she was literally the only one literally like you know you don't think, oh, I can be, I mean, you do think, but you don't see yourself as a director or you don't see yourself as being able to educate people. You don't see it because it's not reflected back at you. Right. And it's so important. It's yeah. so important. And I hope they have more okay. teachers of color now. They do. They do. And I, I teach there occasionally and I, oh, cool. yeah, at fourth year BFAs, I, I started teaching there and I'm going to teach there again. And it's, it's changed a lot. But when we went to school, there were some real problem areas. Some <laughs> there's real still are, problem areas. Real problem. We went to a school at a very specific time when everything mm-hmm. was pretty rough in terms of it was what rough. we're talking about. I remember sobbing in Phyllis's office. Phyllis was also very important to me at theater school because I wanted to be thin and not have big boobs and not look the way I looked. And that, and she was the first, aside from my mother, she was the first person I had told that I didn't want to look the way that I looked. And she was like, don't you know that women are out there injecting their lips and making their boobs bigger and making their butts bigger to look like you? <laughs> like, don't you know that? And I was like, and I, she probably said something else that was more important than that, but I was like, Oh, so there were like moments that really sunk in and helped, but I shouldn't, I shouldn't um, overlook the fact that being a black student at theater school at the time was, was really hard, was hard Mm because there weren't a lot of us. Um, And then they, they wanted us all to be in the same show together and play the same kind of part. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hip hop tiger lilies. Right, right, right. Because everybody sees you as black before they see you as an actor. So, right. right. So, so it's, and, and, and to think back to that time, and I'm sure people like the director of that show, you know, were really just patting themselves on the back, like that they wanted to do whatever we <laughs> so, yeah it's that, that production of peter pan has come up a many times, times. Many. Oh, has it? oh yes oh yes that yeah. doesn't surprise me because it was offensive yeah yeah um for sure. especially it was offensive back then but looking at it through the gaze of you know 2021 um just like yeah. all the whatever I can't <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah 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 well we we almost have to end but I just if, okay. if there was any other anecdotes you wanted to uh get out there I wanted to give you an opportunity to do that so I would be remiss if I did not bring this up um I remember you know how you have to do crew projects on your first year and so I remember I don't know why they would make a first year student do this but as everyone probably knew I had an enormous crush on Leonard Roberts and oh, I, did, yeah. I did not remember yeah. 
Yeah. Was, but I, I you but you had a crush too, didn't you, Boz? I did. Everybody did. Everybody. Did. I was just scared. So, I didn't know I didn't know anything. I my I was on makeup crew for Trojan Women, which was really important, like a pivotal. I learned all my music from Karen Mould and whoever else was on that playing Ani DeFranco that whole time. Um, I had to <laughs> paint muscles on Leonard Roberts' bare chest with a wet sponge every day before the show. O-M-G. O-M-G. And I was mortified. And I'm sure he was too, because I'm sure he knew I had a crush on him. I was mortified. It was the most embarrassing thing. And I'm like, why would you make, first of all, you can't even tell he has like drawn on muscles from the audience. I just have to do this for my own whatever. And then, um, yeah, it was horrifying. Oh my god, that's that is a story and a half. Oh, uh, we're gonna have to have Leonard on and <laughs> ask him what, what he remembers about that about that He's show. Like that's when Trojan Women's other shows came up a lot. Oh, Trojan Women did. Um, yeah. He's like this weird. He'll be like this weird first year who like couldn't stop staring at me. Came into my dressing room and was like, "Paint me with makeup." What was she doing? Yeah. <laughs> so embarrassing. He's lucky. Well, he's lucky to have it. What if you find that? What if you find out all these years later? He's like, "I really like this girl, but she freaked out every time she was in front of me. She, she wouldn't look me in the face at all." <laughs> Thank you so much, Erica. This has been fantastic. And everybody should check you out on Instagram. What's your Instagram handle? It's Yancy Pants. So it's Y-A-N-C-Y-P-A-N-T-Z. Yancy Pants. Yancy Um, Pants. Got it. Yeah. So check me out on Instagram. Okay. Thank you so much, Erica. liked what you heard today please give us a positive five-star review and subscribe and tell your friends i survived theater school is an undeniable ink production jen bosworth ramirez and gina polici are the co-hosts this episode was produced edited and sound mixed by gina polici for more information about this podcast or other goings-on of undeniable ink please visit our website at undeniablewriters.com you can also follow us on facebook instagram and twitter thank you